Good morning, church. We're so delighted you've joined us here online as we worship together at Grace Presbyterian Church. You know, two weeks ago, Renee and I, my wife, celebrated 26 years of marriage. We're hopeful for more years of happiness and bliss, right, Renee? Yeah? I actually forgot that morning to wish Renee happy anniversary before I go to work. And so as I'm getting ready to go to work, she says, hey, you know what day it is? And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, yeah, happy anniversary, which is bad, right? I forgot. No hope for me. A week in the doghouse, right? But then she says, yes. This is exactly what she says. I can't make this up. She says, yes, John. 26 years ago, we were buried. I mean married. I'm not kidding. She used the word buried. Do you know how much mileage I've gotten out of that? How, much, how many times I've said buried, huh? Some weddings are a funeral, right? Let's hope not. We're talking and starting a new series today about hope. Man, we need hope today, don't we? I'll tell you one good thing about this season of the coronavirus is it will not last forever. It is going to be over. A day is coming when we'll no longer be counting uh, the positive cases and deaths like we're keeping score of some awful game. A day is coming when you know, old friends are gonna hug each other and little children will run into their grandparents' arms and office mates will gather around the water cooler and lunch tables and they'll gossip and they'll laugh and athletes and artists will once more cheer on thrilling crowds and H-E-B shelves will be full and checkout lines will be empty instead of the other way around and students will go back to class and they will complain about tests and they'll go to prom and be with friends and. And we hope people will return to their jobs and our church will actually gather in person again to love and to sing and to pray and to greet and to learn and to drink coffee and eat sacramental donuts. And once we get everybody back in here, I'm going to be so pent up and ready for people to be back here that the sermon will be two hours long and no one will complain, right? Ah, we hope. We hope because hope is what keeps us going. Hope for tomorrow is what enables us to endure the problems of today. The Zoom meetings, the spotty internet, the quarantines, and the desperate black market for toilet paper. By the way, I'm not making this up. I actually caught a person this week uh, sneaking into the church and they stole some of our toilet paper. You took some of Jesus' toilet paper and I know who you are, but I won't share it. We'll forgive. If you need it, let us know. Lewis Mees wrote that hope is a cord made up of three strands. The first is imagination. I form a picture in my mind what that's going to be like. I think about it. I make it vivid. Secondly, wanting it. I desire it. I hunger for it. And the third, final cord of hope is belief. I believe it's possible. I believe what I'm hoping for is, is possible. And those three things help to make hope. I'll start with a real life story from this past month. You may have heard about Don Baraldi. He's a priest in a small village in Italy. He was 72 years old this year and he was still running around on a red motorbike and he was known for his cheerful smile. And one family spoke about how when their dad died quite young, he became like a surrogate father for their children, breathing hope into their life. And when the coronavirus swept through the village, he got sick and his age made him vulnerable. But because there was a severe shortage of medical equipment in Italy and because people in the parish loved him so much, they all pitched in together and they got him a ventilator, but he didn't use it. He gave it up. 
so that it could be used to save another patient who was a stranger to him. And a short time later, Father Don died. If you're listening to this message today and you have a hard time believing in God, you might just start believing in that as an act of love. It was not what would be thought of as an optimistic act, but it was a profoundly hopeful one. Optimism, which is a really good quality, it's a predisposition to expect things that will turn out well, right? It's a personality trait. It's usually focused on circumstances. Hope is a Christian virtue. It encompasses optimism, but it's rooted in something much, much deeper. During the Cold War in Czechoslovakia, Vakil Havel split his time between being a political prisoner and doing state-imposed menial work. But he was also the poet of hope for the Czech people, so that when the wall finally came down and the Czech Republic was free, he became its first president. He was asked, what kept you going during those dark years? And he wrote such wonderful words about what hope is that they're worth reading. I'll read these to you. He said, hope in this deep and powerful sense is not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not just because it stands a chance to succeed. Then he says these words, The more unpromising the situation in which we demonstrate hope, the deeper that hope is. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it turns out. I want you, just imagine friends and amigos, that you're a person of hope. Go ahead, if you're, if you're sitting near someone at home, turn to them and say, I'm a person of hope. It's part of how you grow hope, to claim it. Tom Moore is a 99-year-old man. You may have seen this story in the news recently. He just turned 100 on April 30th. He had hip surgery. He decided he would combine rehab with fighting COVID-19 by walking 10 lengths in his little garden for each of the 10 days, and invited, he invited people online to sponsor him. His goal was to get about $10 a length and maybe raise $1,000 to help fight this virus. Somehow, the thought of a 100-year-old World War veteran who broke his hip walking to help other people has caught fire. He had hoped to raise $1,000. At the time of filming this right now, he has gotten over a million donations, a million dollars in donations for more than 39 million total. In other words, one million people have given $39 million. He's now become a national hero. The Royal Mail Service issued a special postmark and it was sent, he, he was actually sent more than 150,000 birthday cards. We have a picture of it there for you. A railway train was named after him. Street art, art featuring his face has popped up across the country. I think he seriously overshot the $1,000 mark, right? $39 million. Here's the thing. You can't do more than you hope to do if you don't have hope. So imagine, imagine if you will, that you could have a hope that never gives up. You find a way, you can't be stopped. Imagine you're the kind of person that can look a pandemic, a recession, fear, isolation, quarantine, uncertainty, square in the eye, and you're convinced 
with your soul and in the depths of your soul that with God at your side, better days are ahead. Imagine being so filled with hope that other people find inspiration and joy just being around you. Imagine you wake up every morning eager for the day. Imagine you find a hope that won't give out. About 50 years ago, a football player named Joe Namath wrote a book and the title was, I can't wait until tomorrow because I get better looking every day. Today, Joe Namath is almost 80 years old. I promise you, I promise you, if he's looking forward to tomorrow, it is not for that reason. It ain't because he's getting better looking every day. Imagine when you go to bed at night, you can't wait until tomorrow because you're convinced, you know what, I'm gonna find God there. Imagine your life is filled with noble goals and wonderful hopes and significant plans and you celebrate the victories and you learn from the failures and you never get stuck in the past because you know what, my future is calling me. When you do this, you imagine yourself as a person of hope so vividly it makes you ache for it. It makes you realize you could even grow toward it a little bit and you actually have taken a step toward hope. In fact, our prayer for this entire series is gonna be from, from one passage in, in the book of Romans 15, verse 13. And you can say it along with me. It's gonna be right there on the screen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible here is teaching that you can actually grow in hope and what you can do to become a more hope-filled human being. We're gonna do that today by looking at a man in the Psalms who actually talks about hope more than any other person in the Bible. And that man who wrote the majority of the Psalms was, of course, David. We'll just walk through David's life in in a quick way and see how a world-class hoper can actually grow hope. And I'll tell you this, hope starts really here. It starts when you're really clear what it is you're hoping for. One day when David was the youngest of eight brothers, he got called in front of a prophet named Samuel who poured a jar of oil over his head and told him, look, one day, David, not not any of your older brothers, but you, David, you're gonna be king. Then the prophet Samuel left town and David and his older brothers went back to work. David went back to shepherding sheep and for for how many years he just kept doing his old job. Nothing really changed except he had hope. He had a future. He was gonna be king. And he starts dreaming about what kind of king he'll be and how he'll unite Israel and how he'd lead people back to God and how he'd bring the Ark of Jerusalem and write songs and play music and build the temple and have an heir and build a kingdom. And so David began what you could call a hope inventory. And I wanna invite you at home right now to think about what would be your hope inventory? You know, in this season, we've had to do all this inventory at home, like food and supplies, right? We don't wanna hoard, but we don't wanna run out. Well, high hope people take an inventory of their hopes Low hope people just have a vague collection of jumbled up wishes that come and go. But we want you to be a high hope person. So you start by listing what it is you really hope for, not what you think you should hope for. Just be honest. And you can start with these categories. First, what do I hope to have, right? This could involve tangible hopes. I hope to have enough money to be really generous to retire well. I wanna live in this kind of place. I wanna drive this kind of car. I wanna have these, you know, 
these tangible goods, but I also want to have intangible goods like good friends and, and a joyful family and a healthy body and a happy, happy partner or a happy marriage. Those are having hopes. And secondly, in your hope inventory, you want to ask this question, what do I hope to do? For David, he was working as a shepherd. He was hoping he would do great things as a king. What do you want to do with your work, with your volunteering? What kind of experiences do you hope to engage in with travel, play, and vacation, right? All that stuff matters to God. What do you hope to learn? What skills do you hope to acquire? Thirdly, what do I hope to become? And this is perhaps one of the most important. Maybe you hope to be less fearful or more wise or more generous or more loving. Maybe this season is teaching all of us about the need to be more patient. Go ahead and feel free to give an elbow to someone who you don't have to social distance with on that one, right? Maybe you, you hope to become a better truth teller or freed from an addiction or just be someone who serves more around the house. What are you hoping for in your, in your relational, physical, vocational, spiritual life? Great hopers have goals for their future, right? They do not drift. They press on to the mark. And I really want to encourage you in this. Write down what you want your future to look like. I've done my, that myself in this season. However old you are, it could be in a month or a year or a decade, what is one step you could take today to begin moving toward your tomorrow? If you're online, you know, and checking this out, just type it in right there, right now, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, and, and, and let other people know, what's one thing you could do today that would move you towards a better tomorrow? And you might even inspire somebody with that. While you consider this, I want you to listen to this scripture that very powerfully reminds me and you that it is God who gives birth to hope in us. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So what that says is, and it's like a song we sing, uh, that Jesus is our living hope, that Christ is our hope. But there is a role that you and I can do in becoming a hoper, and, and there's some responsibility. And that is we have to take responsibility for our hoping. A hopeful person is somebody for whom hoping has actually become a habit. And you want to be around that kind of person in crisis. That kind of person who, who has hopeful habits, their hope is not fickle. It is kind of, you know, like a thermometer that just reads the temperature. Or maybe more of a thermostat, right? I think hope should be like a thermostat, right? I was talking to a couple of elders this week who are saying around their house, they're having thermostat wars. I can relate to that. Renee is always cold and I'm always hot. And everybody wants to be able to set the thermostat. Well, you know, when you're hoping, you want to be able to set that thermostat. One of the most famous stories about David is his encounter with the enemy named, you know, that, that big giant he slayed, Goliath, who had shattered Israel's hopes until David came along. David told his brother Elab, I can take him. He's just a young boy. Now what's striking is Elab didn't say, go get him, David. I'm so proud of you at 12 years old. Way to go, little brother. He told David, you can't beat Goliath. 
Who do you think you are? Stop running off at the mouth. I promise you this, when you dare to hope a lot, there will be a lot of people, for whatever reasons, who will want to strip you of your hope. And when you start moving forward with big plans and high energy and great dreams, it just for some reason brings out naysayers, right? But that doesn't stop David, and don't let it stop you. David starts telling other people, I can take him. And word gets to King Saul, but Saul is not very hopeful either. King Saul tells David, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. Every single soldier besides David and Israel has lost hope for an important reason. And this will inform us. Remember, hope involves three elements, right? Imagining, wanting, and believing. Could the other Israelite soldiers imagine Goliath being defeated? Sure. Did they want Goliath defeated? Sure. Did they believe they could defeat Goliath? No way. And that's what they lacked. And that's why they didn't have hope. They didn't have that third strand of belief. Why did David continue to believe that he could do it, even though he's only like 12, why did he believe that he could do it when older, more experienced soldiers could not? The reason is, is because David had learned hope. He had learned hope. Sermon in a sentence. To live without hope is to cease to live. So grow in hope and hope can grow in you. David talks about this. He says to the king, I can take Goliath because you know what? When I was just a shepherd boy, whenever a lion or a bear came and, and went after the sheep, I, man, I would strike that, that, that thing down and I would rescue that sheep. Imagine you're in a field, you're watching a sheep and they're not even yours because they were not David's. They're, they're David's dad's sheep, right? And a lion comes after one. You're armed with a stick. What do you do? Lions coming out from one of the sheep, you're armed with a stick. I might have run. David could have run. The only one that would have seen him run would be the sheep. And they would never talk. They know that that's a bad idea. Oh, that's terrible. Nobody would have ever known except David and God. But David stayed and he prayed and he did what shepherds do. And he wasn't just guarding sheep. He was actually growing hope. Because hope never abandons you, you abandon it. He doesn't tell Saul, hey, I learned that I could defeat lions and bears. What he says is, hey, look, whenever this stuff happened before, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. In other words, God has always helped me fight my battles before and God's gonna help me fight this battle as well. And he's learning hope. Amigos, the truth is you can hear somebody say God is faithful a hundred times in a message like this. You can read it a hundred times in a book, but you'll never come to believe it until you've lived it out and experienced it in your own life. See, there's a big difference between hoping and wishing. Wishing doesn't cost you anything. Hope right, includes a joyful embrace of my responsibility. Hope pushes me, hope energizes me, hope acts, therefore hope grows. And one of the secrets of high hope people is they're constantly imagining, wanting and believing and then moving toward what they're hoping for. Now this does not usually require some big dramatic change, mostly it's learning to apply hope to the ordinary challenges of life like David did as a shepherd. Maybe you're struggling at home with work 
Maybe you're having a hard time and you're procrastinating and you're giving less than your best. Maybe your goal is to spend 15 minutes of joyfully interacting with a coworker online tomorrow. Maybe you've been laid off altogether. A lot of people have in this season. You're tempted to lose hope. You can spend an hour networking on the phone. Maybe you're feeling physically lethargic. A lot of people are wrestling with that. You can spend an hour outside walking today. You can do that. Maybe you have a tough parenting challenge. This season's tough on everybody. But I have to say, I think this season's a real killer for, for parents with young children. You might have seen this, it's all over social media. There was an Israeli mom with four kids, two computers, and a never-ending pile of what's that messages. She just lost it. She goes into her car and recorded a 90-second rant. And she said these words, I go from one child to another. Here's science. Here's math. How am I supposed to know all these things? Now our children will find out how dumb we really are. It's not right, really. The music teacher of my youngest sent over a musical score this morning. What am I going to do with that information? Do I have some kind of band in the house? I can't read music. Just one second. Let me pull out my clarinet and help my son with his score. All day long, it's how's this child feeling? How's this child feeling? He's been spending the entire day on his cell phone. He's fine, sleeping fine, eating fine. They don't stop eating. How's he feeling? Ask me how I'm feeling. I'm falling to pieces. Her rant, this is true, because it so resonates with everybody, has been translated into 20 languages and seen a gazillion times. It's gone viral all over the world. Let me tell you, if you're a parent, I know it's really hard. Let me tell you, if you're a single parent, oh my goodness, that might seem impossible. You're facing a financial challenge or a job challenge or a health challenge. You're elderly, you're vulnerable, you're single, you're alone. It can be really, really hard. You're not crazy, don't despair. You're not alone. The God who rescues David from lions and bears and giant foes will rescue you too and be with you and build your hope. It was in everyday trials when nobody was watching in David's unglamorous job as a shepherd that David was actually becoming a world-class hoper. One bear at a time, one line at a time. And God might use whatever you're facing to help grow patience in you. It can be a very helpful thing to actually name your commitment to growing in hope. So I want to invite you to tell God right now, God, you know what? I can't do life on my own. But you and I together, we can. God, I'm committed to seeking um, your help and to growing in hope with you. I'll tell you a great true story about this. Charles Plum was a U.S. Navy jet pilot in Vietnam. After 75 combat missions, his plane was destroyed by a surface-to-air missile. Plum ejected and was parachuted into enemy hands. He was captured and he spent six years in a communist Vietnamese prison. He survived the old jail and now lectures on lessons he learned from that experience. One day when Plum and his wife were sitting in a restaurant, another man came up to his table and said, you're Plum, you flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier Kitty Hawk. You were shut down. How in the world did you know that, asked Plum. And the man said to Plum, I packed your parachute. And Plum gasped in surprise and pumped his hand and said, I guess it worked. And Plum assured him, it sure did. If your shoot hadn't worked, I wouldn't be here today. 
Plum couldn't sleep that night thinking of that man. Plum says, I kept wondering what he had looked like in a Navy uniform with a white hat, a bib in his back and his bell-bottom trousers. I wonder how many times I might have seen him and not even said, good morning, how are you, or anything, because you see, I was a fighter pilot and he was just a sailor. And Plum thought of the many sailors uh, and the many hours that the sailors had spent packing those parachutes, carefully weaving and folding the silks of each chute and, and making sure that it would open. And Plum often asked in his talks, who's packing your parachute? See, everyone has someone who provides what they need to make it through the day, right? And he also points out there's all kinds of parachutes, right? He needed a physical parachute. He needed a mental parachute, his emotional parachute. He needed a spiritual parachute. He needed all those parachutes when he was shot down. And he called on all those supports before reaching safety. Sometimes in the daily challenges that life gives us, what we miss is really important. We may fail to say hello, please, or thank you, or congratulate someone on something wonderful that's happened to them, give them a compliment, or do something nice for no reason. So as you go through this week and this month, recognize the people who are packing your parachutes, who are breathing hope into your life, who are encouraging you, because they can pack a parachute full of hope. And a primary gift that God wants us to use to grow hope with us is the gift of other people in our life who do pack that parachute. Because this is something else hopers always do is they build relationships of hope. David had a friend named Jonathan. Jonathan was actually the son of the old King Saul. He was the heir to the old King Saul. Jonathan should by all rights have become the king. Instead, we're told that one day Jonathan gave to his friend David his royal robe, his tunic, his sword, and his bow. Why would he do this? Well, this is a symbolic gesture. This was a way of saying, I'm not gonna be the king. You're going to be the king, David. It was his way of naming David as the future king. And it's really one of the most breathtaking moments in all the Bible and literature. This is an unbelievably noble sacrifice because he could have become the king, but he says, no, I want you to be the king, David. That's what God wants. Jonathan said, David, when I see you, when I look at you, I see a king. When I look at you, I see you as God's anointed. Can't you see him packing David's parachute, right? This doesn't bother me. I'm not jealous. I celebrate you. I want you to be successful, more successful than me. David, I want you to always remember that the God who made you wants you to be the king. And every time you wear this robe and every time you hold the sword, I want you to remember to never settle for anything less. Can you imagine how that impacted David? They were young and they were young friends and young men when that happened. And very shortly after that, they were separated by circumstances and David would never see his friend Jonathan again. And Jonathan would actually, if you know the scriptures, would die relatively young, but his friendship with David marked David to the end of his life. And I wonder how often through the years David pulled out that sword when he was alone and when he was on the run or when he had a great victory or he repented from great sin. He pulled out that robe and he remembered what his friend had called him to do and how his friend had packed that parachute for him. And if you look at this, the contrast between Jonathan and David and his brother, Aleb, is just amazing. Because the man who was born to be David's brother, Aleb, became his rival. And the man who was born to be David's rival actually became his brother. The friendship of Jonathan grew hope in David. So the first thing for you to do is think of the, the Jonathans in your life. Think of the people who pack your parachute. Identify them and, and take good care of them. 
Let them know you can't afford to lose them. Let them know what they mean to you. Maybe you're thinking right now, I don't really have a Jonathan. I don't really have anyone to pack my parachute. I could use more of them or better than them. We'll start by deliberately contacting at least one person today that, you know what, I want to build that friendship with. I want to build hope in that and I want them to be a person that encourages me. There may never be a season in our lifetime that right now when people need encouragement and hope more than in this season, that person might be next to you right now. Somebody sent me this last week. We are weeks into self-isolation and it's been very upsetting for me to witness my husband standing at the living room window, staring aimlessly into space with tears running down his cheeks. It breaks my heart to see him like this. I've thought very hard of how I can cheer him up. I've even considered letting him in, but rules are rules. That was a joke. Supposed to be funny. There's two people laughing right now very quietly. You might think you don't have any hope to offer anybody, but you'd be dead wrong. I had a friend from one of my previous churches call me last week. He said, hey, John, I'm doing ministry and due diligence. I'm checking in on the elderly. How are you doing? I said, very funny, friend. I'm not making this up. His name is Chris. He's, he's got a really cool job. He's an Air Force chaplain, and he's taunting me, calling me elderly and checking in on me. And I'm like, Chris, bring it on, pal. It's real easy to be a man on Zoom, you know, keyboard warrior. Anyhow, it's just not other people who help us hope. It's not just that. It is that, but not just that. You have even better help than that. And that's really the next step in growing in hope. Invite God, right, into your hoping. Bring God in. When David was young, the prophet Samuel anointed him, saw the king, employed him. The army loved him. People sang songs about him and everything he touched turned to gold until it didn't, until King Saul got jealous and tried to kill David. Over time, David lost his home. He lost his job. He lost his income. He lost his status. He lost his security. And he lost his best friend. David, you may not know this, spent 10 years on the run and lived in a cave. He sheltered in place like many of us do today in a cave. He attracted some followers there in his little cave, but they weren't much home to write about. They're actually described this way in the Old Testament. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their leader. How would you like that for a group of friends? Everyone's in distress, debt, or discontent. Wow. Then they were sheltering in place and then they actually end up losing their cave. When this happened, they, they basically... The men went out one day on a little journey and they came back and they found out that their cave had been raided and their wives and children were gone, their possessions were gone, and they were, they were just decimated. Here you are sheltering in a cave, you lose everything even in the cave. And this is what the scripture says. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. That's pretty bad. David was literally cried out because it, it couldn't get any worse and it did. David was greatly distressed because even his friends who were depressed and in debt and discontented, they said, maybe we should stone David, our leader, to death. He's a, a fugitive. He's a failure. He's a marked man living in a, in a cave. His own ragged little community was ready to kill him. He literally had no one to turn to until he did. One of my favorite statements in all the Bible 
It says, but David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now you have to pause here. What do you think that moment was like? What kind of thoughts do you think Pastor David's head and mind when he encouraged himself in the Lord? How do you think David imagined his future, that part of hope? I'll tell you what thoughts I bet David did not have while he encouraged himself in the Lord. I'll bet he did not think, oh God, this can't be happening. Oh God, these stones are gonna really hurt bad. Oh God, I'll never be king again. Oh God, I would have been better off if Goliath had killed me. What I've learned about myself, especially in this last season of my life, where I faced a lot of challenges, is if I'm not careful, I can actually discourage myself in the Lord. I go to God when it's time to pray, but I just rehearse all the ways that I'm inadequate. But I want to tell you something. God is never a God of discouragement. The text does not say, then David discouraged himself in the Lord and God was glad because he likes it when we grovel. God may bring painful thoughts like convictions of sin or deep prophetic challenge to work for justice and goodness, but God never brings despair. If you have a thought of despair, that is not from God. Some time ago, I asked a wise friend, how do you assess the state of your soul? His first statement was very hope-related and very striking to me. I'll offer it to us now. I use it as a diagnostic of the soul. His question was, do I find myself getting more or less easily discouraged these days? He said, I find when the peace of Christ is reigning in my heart, I don't get discouraged so easily. So I'm taking some time every day in this season to become aware of my thoughts. I'm not even trying to fight them or control them. I'm just aware when they're, when they're hope bringing or when they're hope robbing, right? And then I invite God into my thoughts. Each day I ask, do I find myself getting more discouraged or less discouraged or more hopeful? Get clear on where your hopefulness is. If you find discouragement is a problem, remember God wants to help you. You right now in your little cave can do what David did. You can invite him in. Encourage yourself in the Lord. Psalm 42, 5 says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And this leads to the final dimension of growing hope. You have to guard, really carefully guard your ultimate hope. I don't mean your hope about tomorrow or next week or next year or hope for this relationship or hope for that job, but your ultimate hope. What is your ultimate hope? What do you put your hope in? One of the great statements about David is actually found in the New Testament. It says, now when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. David had his day when he was young and full of promise to the time when he was an old man. He got some things right and he definitely got some things wrong, but he served God's purpose and you can do that. You can put your name in this verse, right? For when Larry or or when Donald or when Lo or when Jonathan or when Sammy or when Stella or when Junior or when you serve God in your own generation. You may know in the New Testament, one of the most important titles given to Jesus as he's called the son of David. Now this is not a distinction given to any other character in the Bible. Jesus is never called the son of Moses or the son of Abraham. Why is he called the son of David? 
Well, it wasn't because of David's giftedness. It was not because of David's moral track record. It was actually a title of hope. It was under David that the king of Israel was united and flourished for a time. After his son Solomon came division and exile and darkness, but David was the one brief shining moment that Israel could never forget. Israel would look back and dream dreams. They think one day we'll have a king like that again. One day that glory will come back and we'll call him the son of David. It was a hopeful prophetic title. Then King David wrote at the end of his most famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now that's just not hope. That's ultimate hope. I remember last year I visited a person in the hospital who had a growth in his brain stem and a physical therapist came to help him walk and the therapist was one of these great, big, outspoken, kind of funny and really talkative guys who would tease and cajole and challenge and encourage patients. He was a, a high hopeful person. It was his recreational way. He was really good at it. And after the session, I was kind of there at the end of it. I'll never forget the church member looked at him and said, you're the first person I've ever met in this whole rehab clinic that's even given me an ounce of hope. It was so good to see that person have hope to walk. It made him work twice as hard. Hope is so powerful. The day came, of course, as it will for all of us, when it was clear he was not going to walk again. And when it's clear that you'll not get what you're hoping for, and that day will come, the question will be, What have you put your ultimate hope in? It is David in the Psalms who told his soul, put your hope in the Lord. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the ways in my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's ultimate hope. David was an old man when he said those words and I imagine he had a long gray beard and a wrinkled face. And he remembered when he was young and handsome and a strange old prophet named Samuel poured over him and said those mysterious words and how it all began that day when the spirit of the Lord came upon him and and the way David decided that young men and young women do that day that he was gonna be in charge and when he led things, things would be different. He'd get it right. And sometimes he really did and sometimes he got things wrong. But something inside of him said, I will dwell, I will dwell in God's house. He didn't say, I I think I might. He didn't say, it sure would be nice if I could. He was a stubborn guy, this David. He had a heart of a racehorse. He said, I will stand in the house. I may make a mess. I may spill on the rug. I may knock down the lamps. I may break all the expensive stuff. I may eat pasta I'm not supposed to eat. I, I know what a pain it is to have me in the house, but I know, I'll tell you what, you gotta drag me out of here kicking and screaming because I will dwell in God's house. If you put your hope in Jesus, you can make him your forgiver and your leader and your friend. He's your hope. He's your fallback hope. He's your world-class hope, your ultimate living hope. Because we do not hope in hope itself. We hope in a person. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks for this time to come together and to learn and to grow in hope. It is my hope and our hope, God, that we'll take seriously the teachings of David and look at his life and and learn from him. 
and think about the three strands that make up our hope and ask ourselves and take a hope inventory. Who do we want to be? What do we want to have? What do we want our life to be about? And write that down and claim that future. And, and Lord, we'll think about the people who pack our parachute, who breathe hope and encouragement into us. And we'll think about what can be done. And we'll encourage those people and we'll love those people and we'll be someone and be for someone who packs their parachute and we'll love them and encourage them and give them hope. Father, we hope for the end of this virus. We pray for our families that are in our church that are fighting against it. We pray you bring healing to them. And we pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us as we say now together, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our day of bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us at Grace Presbyterian Church. We hope and we trust that this message was a blessing and gave you much encouragement as you face today. At Grace Presbyterian Church, we are a church family that welcomes everyone who welcomes everyone. And we would love to welcome you. So please join us either online or in person. You'll find a community that loves God and loves each other. And we are blessed by other people joining us. So please come and join us at Grace Presbyterian Church.